I think some of the lessons I learned, the first one is that freedom sucks. That we think freedom is great and political freedom is great, but social freedom is not great. If you're unattached, if you're uncommitted, you're unremembered. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. In his number one New York Times bestseller, The Road to Character, David Brooks made a humorous confession. I was born with a natural disposition towards shallowness, he wrote, before really piling on himself. I now work as a pundit and columnist. I'm paid to be a narcissistic blowhard, to volley my opinions, to appear more confident about them than I really am, to appear smarter than I really am, to appear better and more authoritative than I really am. Well, he may claim to be a doubting Thomas Aquinas, but I don't buy it. As fans of his required reading op-ed column in the New York Times have long known, Brooks is one of the most astute social, political, and cultural commentators of our era. In that same 2015 book, Brooks delineated the difference between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues, extolling why and how we should value inner character over external achievement. Now, liberal America's favorite conservative, or vice versa depending on whom you ask, is seeking an even higher plane in his latest book, The Second Mountain, which explores the meaning of leading a truly moral existence. In today's selfie-centered world, Brooks has identified the four principles that constitute a purposeful life. And he argues that while independence may lead us to the top of a career mountain, interdependence is what transports us to that other, bigger mountain. David Brooks, welcome to TBD. Oh, it's an honor to be here. So let's clear away, first of all, any question about what the second mountain is. What is it, and how do you get there? I just noticed a lot of people that I admire the most have their lives have a two-mountain shape. So they get out of college, and they pick a career, and they think, this is the mountain I'm going to climb. I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, and they climb it. And some of them succeed, and they find it unsatisfying. Some of them fail. Sometimes they get knocked sideways uh, by a scare, a cancer scare, or the death of a child, something that wasn't in the original plan. And they're in the valley. And in the valley, they really get introduced to themselves. And they realize that first mountain was shallow uh, and mostly ego-driven. And in the valley, they discover their heart and soul. And when they see the sudden depths of themselves, they realize only spiritual and emotional food is going to fill that. The second mountain is really about giving back, pouring forth, being relational. It's a bigger and better life. It's really a transformation from one moral system to a better one. Is, is suffering essential part of that? You know, the ego is strong, and you've got to be blasted out of it. And I think you can be blasted out of it in one of two ways. One, suffering. I think that makes the desires of the ego seem small. Sometimes love. I do think some people get loved, and they experience this deep, passionate love, and they just want to give themselves away. You say in the book that you've become radicalized over the past few years, and you write, of course, that your marriage ended. 
talk to me a little bit about how this uh, applied to your own life. Yeah, there's a personal side and a social side. The personal side was in 2013, my kids had gone off to college, so they were gone, and then my marriage ended. And then I am used to be in the conservative movement, but conservatism even back then was shifting away from what I thought was conservatism, so I lost a lot of my friends. And I uh, found myself living alone in an apartment. And workaholism is a really good way to avoid any spiritual and emotional problems. So I really became a workaholic. And I noticed that one day I, I never entertained in my home and I really had nobody to see over the weekends. And I would pull open the drawer in my kitchen that should have been where the silverware was and there were post-it notes there. And where there should have been plates, there were stationary because all I was doing was working. Mm-hmm. And in those moments of suffering, you really fall into yourself. And so I realized that all the things that I had really sort of organized my life around, which was putting privacy over relationship, putting productivity over people, uh, that, that I was screwing up my life, living in the wrong way. And so I said, how do you recover from a moral ditch? Uh, and so I spent five years thinking about that, reading about it, talking to people about that. Did you do a lot of therapy in that time? I did a little. Uh, mm. I mostly did a lot of reading because <laughs> mm. uh, I'm me. Uh, and so I read a lot of theology, a lot of spirituality, a lot of um, psychology. Uh, and gradually, I came to certain different conclusions about life. And it came in handy because the rest of society was about to go into a ditch. So I became an expert in how do you get out of a moral ditch. Mm-hmm. And what do you think were the critical things that took you out? Yeah, I think some of the lessons I learned, the first one is that freedom sucks. That we think freedom is great and political freedom is great, but social freedom is not great. If you're unattached, if you're uncommitted, uh, you're unremembered. And so that's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned was the, in moments of difficulty, you can either be broken or you can be broken open. And if you're broken, you shrivel and you turn small and you get driven by your resentments and fears. But people who are broken open get bigger and they get more expansive. There's a great Annie Dillard quote in the book that if we get down to the place where the monsters live, we're afraid to go, we find our illimitable ability to care. And that's when, I, when you get deep down into yourself, you find the heart which yearns for fusion with another, you find the soul which yearns for fusion with the good, and you get down into those tender parts. And I think people who've been through that are broken open. And then the final thing I learned is that you can't pull yourself out of the valley on your own. You need somebody else to reach down and lift you out. And I was very fortunate to have a community in my life in 20, starting in 2013 and continuing to today of basically young kids in D.C. who I have dinner with every Thursday night who there are about 40 of them, and they are emotionally transparent, and they force you to be emotionally open. And I went to this home first time in 2013. I met a kid for the first time, and I tried to shake his hand. He said, we really don't shake hands here. We hug here. And so I'm not the huggiest guy on the face of the (laughs) earth, but uh, I've been hugging with them every Thursday night for five years since, and they showed me how, how to live in a more open and vulnerable way. And you remarried. I did remarry two years ago, um, and so that part of life is now completely blissful. And so back in 2013, I was having all these deep spiritual experiences because I was suffering and all that, and now I'm blissfully happy. And um, I, I'm, I don't have some of those deep, you know, pondering experiences, but good riddance, I'd rather be blissfully happy. And who are these young people that you're having dinner with every Thursday night? Well, I, there's a couple in D.C. Uh, named Kathy and David, and uh, they had a kid I still have a kid named Santi, went to D.C. public schools. And Santi had a friend named James whose mom had some health issues. And James often had no place to stay. So they said, well, James can stay with us. And then James had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. And before they knew it, they had 40 kids around the dinner table and 15 sleeping in the basement. 
And so we've created a community called AOK, All Our Kids. And we all are a second family to each other. And I came hungering for, not for chicken, which is what we eat every Thursday, but for spiritual and emotional food. And they came hungering for family too. And so we found each other and we are different races and different generations, but we walk through life equally and, and we throw our stuff on the table, the good stuff that we're grateful for. And we talk about the bad stuff we're afraid of. And one of the girls had a failing kidney, so David gave her his. And so it's we treat each other like we're family. So when you talk about this arc of you're striving up this first mountain and then you know you go into the valley and you reevaluate and so on, do you need financial means to have achieve this? Because you know, a part of me thinks, well, isn't reaching the second mountain only possible if if you have the financial means to do so? I mean, remember what Becky Sharp said in Thackeray's Vanity Fair: "I think I could be a good woman if I had five thousand a year." <laughs> yeah, which I think a lot of people feel. Which is, I mean, they're busting their jobs to you know work right. several jobs. It's like it's all just terrible and difficult. And so, on. isn't it a bit of a luxury to spend time on spiritual evolution? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, I've traveled um, the country in the last several years meeting a lot of these people who I think just radiate joy. And they've had tough valleys and they had no means to get through them. So there's a woman named Sarah Atkins in Ohio. She had the worst thing happen that can happen. Her husband was mentally ill and he killed their kids and then himself. Oh my God. And she came home and she described to me what a, step by step what it was like to find their bodies. Uh, and it's I'm horrific. Sure. It happened three years ago. And she had no money. Uh, and she went through that process and she is coming out the other side gradually. And, and she now runs a free pharmacy for people in, in southeastern Ohio. She runs a, a school. She has a, a little foundation without much money. But she said, I wanted to show that whatever he tried to do to me, he wasn't going to do it. And uh, she has a certain sense of purpose and somewhat angry because angry at what he tried to do and what he did do. But she has a sense of purpose and she radiates service. Her life is a gift. Uh, do you think you've written a religious book? I mean, how much is faith a part of this um, reevaluation and learning? I, I don't think it has to be. Uh, the question is, can you be good without God? I think the answer is obviously. Uh, I found I could not be good without God. And so uh, I did become faithful over the course of this time, not in any a very steady way, a way that's filled with doubt and filled with moments where I don't believe. But uh, as a friend of mine said, my categories were not broad enough for the way reality seemed to me. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, we're sitting here in, near Penn Station, New York, and I had a moment maybe five years ago now where I just seemed to me that all the people I was walking around and walking around Penn Station, New York is as dehumanizing experiences as possible to imagine. But it just occurred to me they all had souls. And it came to me that I couldn't do my job as a journalist unless I thought people had a soul, that each human being has some piece of themselves that has no shape, size, color, or weight, but gives them infinite value and dignity. And why would I bother writing about somebody if they didn't have that? And everybody I cover and everybody we talk to has that, uh, that infinite dignity, uh, a yearning to be good. And once you come up with the idea that people do have souls, they're not just tigers, they're not just rivers or trees, then it seems like there, there's one soul that somehow we're all connected in, and that pretty much leads you toward religion. Well, we're living, of course, in a, in a deeply narcissistic time, and everything is geared to this kind of searing individualistic expression, and, and very often quite viciously so. I mean, how do we fix the rampant cult of, of egotism and get to some of this second mountain stuff? Yeah. Because as, as a culture, as a society, it seems like everything is militating against that. Yeah, well, I think we've had 60 years of hyper-individualism. 
starting in the 60s, both on the right and the left, we adopted a very individualistic way of living. I'm free to be myself. I don't want any restraint. And for the right, it was economic freedom. And for the left, it was more social and lifestyle freedom. And in my view, we've run out the string. We've created this sense where we don't share any moral system. We get our own. Uh, and that leaves people morally naked and alone. Uh, and so I don't think we're going to go back to the deference to authority of the 1950s. I would never want to do that. But I do think we can organize our lives around commitments, the promises we make to each other. And I think the good life is a life of maximal commitments. When most of us commit to one of four, or more of four things, to a spouse and family, to a philosophy or faith, to a vocation, and to a community. And to me, the fulfillment of our lives depends on how well we choose and execute those commitments, how we choose to marry and how we serve, how we choose our vocation, serve that, and so on. And to me, the best definition of a commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. Mm -hmm. uh, Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. <laughs> you've got to build the structure of behavior around those moments to stay faithful to the things you've promised to. Do you think that the Republican Party, which really has now become the party of Trump, has sort of rejected these values, or do you think that they're going to feel they're going to come back to them at all? I think they've uh, created a bastardized form of them. The Republican Party, or at least Donald Trump, doesn't represent community. It represents tribalism. And tribe seems like community because it is a form of bonding, but it's not based on mutual affection. It's based on mutual hatred that we hate the same thing together. And so it's always based on us-them thinking, friend-enemy distinctions, a scarcity mindset that we're competing in a zero-sum battle for resources. It's always erect barriers, build walls, distrust. And the Republican Party, and in some degree the left too, has become subsumed with tribalism. And I think you can only beat the bonding of tribalism with a better kind of bonding, which is the bonding of commitment and community. And so I do think there's a, a way to steer our politics and steer our national life back, but it's got to build with the intimate connections, intimate trusting connections. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. From the ground up. You, you report a lot on communities that you do think are getting it right and have these bonding convictions and faith and family and all of those things. But very often, they're, they're the very places that, that did actually vote for Trump. How do you explain that? Well, I think they voted for Trump because they felt under threat from the left. or They felt looked down upon. They felt invisible. And they still like him, is the point. 
Well, they tolerate him. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Trump voters in the last few years, and their views toward him are very complicated. And some people really like him. Some people just tolerated him. Some find him disgusting, but some just don't like to think about him at all. And I I find the latter group was actually the most common. They felt they had to vote for him because they didn't like Secretary Clinton, uh, but they just rather not talk about it. And they find it all yucky. They find it some like a lot of places I go. I was just in Nebraska yesterday. I was in New Orleans just before that. And that's one red, one very blue. They view Washington and some of the things that we in sort of our slice of the media think about a lot. To them, that's just weather patterns in Mongolia. It's just super far away. It doesn't really impact their life one way or the other. Do you think that the genie is going to be put back in the bottle after Trump lurches off the stage? Or do you think this is now the new normal and we're going to simply progress along this path in which we are really driven by that day's digital explosion? Yeah. No, I think we're going to improve. I think, you know, history moves forward. And one social theorist I describe in the book, um, what she called a ratchet, hatchet, pivot, ratchet process. So you face a problem as a people, and then you create a culture to solve it. So in the 1950s, we created a very collectivist culture, and later a very individualistic culture. So you create a system, it works for a little while, and then it stops working. And then you have to hatchet it up. You got to chop it up. And in those chop it up moments, it can be very convulsive. 1968 was one, 1848 was one, we're in one right now. And it seems like everything's falling apart. But I have great faith in people's ability to figure stuff out. And so somebody creates a new culture, and then we ratchet up again. And frankly, what I try to describe in the book is a culture that's not tribalistic, that's not hyper-individualistic. It's based on relationship. If we really put relationship first in our lives and decide we're made from relationship and that our relationship, we is more important than me. If you really take that idea seriously, what does it mean? And I think that points in the direction of a better world, whether right or left, that all of us would want to walk into. You spend a lot of time with young people, obviously, because you, you teach. And I'm very amused in the book, actually, about the things you say that sort of celebrity speakers say at commencement yeah. uh, speeches when they come in and they say, you know, follow your dream. And it's always about you can do whatever you want to do. Why does that get you so offended? <laughs> well, I mean, what is it you think that's so wrong about that message? You know, I spend a lot of time at colleges and I teach. Um, and the students are looking for a way to spend their life with meaning and purpose. And they want to know where wisdom lies. And you'd think that we as the older generation would have something to say on this question. So they come to commencement. The first thing, commencements, they, the schools pick a highly successful person to give a speech on why success doesn't matter. And then they say yeah, something like... That is like, so irritating to I me. Know. <laughs> and then they say, don't be afraid to fail. From what you learn, it's okay to fail if you happen to be J.K. Rowling or Denzel Washington. Like, <laughs> for most people, failure sucks. But for J.K. Rowling, it's fine. But then the, the thing that really bugs me is the big boxes of nothing we give them. We give them bromides that mean absolutely nothing. And so they want to know, what, where do I devote my life? What is worth wanting? And first we say, well, be free. And they're drowning in freedom. So then we say, don't worry, the future is limitless. Take risks. And they don't need to hear that. That doesn't help them decide. And so they ask, well, what's the source of authority? And we say, look inside yourself. You do you. Find your passion. And so basically they want some guidance about what is a good life. And our moral culture says, you're on your own, buddy. And maybe if you're Nietzsche or Aristotle, you can come up with your own moral philosophy. Most of us can't do that. So what do you tell them? I mean, in a way, your message, uh, you know, it ain't a sexy message uh, in today's culture to be told, no, it's not about being outside the box. It's really about getting inside the box and figuring out 
you know, how to live in it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my students, I taught this course on these four commitments, and I said, how do you think about the marriage decision? How do you think about the vocation decision? What career are you going to dedicate your life to? And to me, I think they want to settle themselves in those things. They want to find, you know, we all look at couples who um, who have been married 50 years uh, and are gloriously happy in that. And those people have won the lottery. Those are the happiest people I know, the people who have had good, long marriages and feel warmer at age 75 than they did at 25. And living that out requires some skills. And so I think they're hungry for the skills to do that. And they want to find a vocation where they can lose themselves in it. And I I almost called the book To Give Yourself Away. And that title was very popular with my younger friends. Somehow that's what they want to do. They don't want it to be about me, me, me. They want to say, I give myself to this. They want a calling to something bigger than themselves. Like all of us. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. In March, you wrote a column that made the case for reparation to African Americans, which I'm sure startled some of your conservative friends. I mean, what led you to that? Yeah, at first I had read this Ta-Nehisi Coates piece from several years ago called The Case for Reparations with a great deal of skepticism. Um, but over the last three or four years, I've spent really traveling around the country, and a few things have leapt out at me. One is that the election of Trump has put us at a moral breaking point on race. Right now, our political division overlaps with our racial division, and that's horrific. That's a horrific problem. Second, just meeting so many African-Americans who have almost given up hope, that's a bit of an overstatement, but who are filled with a sense of pessimism and despair that I didn't hear about. And maybe they weren't expressing it, um, but now they're expressing it, and we've got to listen. I was with a woman in South Carolina who's elderly, and she said, you know, I came up in 1953. I feel the young African-Americans in my neighborhood have it worse off than I did back then. Uh, And so there has to be a radical step taken to say we acknowledge this sin. And what would that look like, though? Well, the first thing is to say we we do it as a show of respect for what you've endured because of slavery and all the discrimination since. And then you have a conversation about that. And in Coates' piece, he doesn't ask for, like, writing checks. It's starting the conversation. We acknowledge this history, and let's have a conversation how we do that. There are various proposals out there. Some just would advocate doing it through... Uh, more generous welfare programs. Some advocate doing it through baby bonds where you give kids something they could later invest in education or something like that. There are various methods to do it. But the point is to have the conversation about it and to acknowledge the history. Which of the candidates currently colliding on the trail do you think has the most evolved moral message, if any of them do? Yeah. Well, I guess I I like Cory Booker's message among the Democrats. Uh, Bernie Sanders talked about a class war and Kamala Harris is more aggressive. I'm a prosecutorial confrontationalist. And he says, you answer hatred with love, you answer imbalance with love. Uh, And love is a powerful and redeeming force. Uh, And I think that's right. I don't think that's mushy-mushy. I do think most people can be appealed to by their better natures. And as King and as as, um, so many others have taught us, love can be a a force to be aggressive with, uh, to confront people with evil, Uh, but it can also be a force of embrace and forgiveness and vulnerability. Uh, And if you don't have some element of moral humility in your message, you turn into the monster that you see in the other side. And I like the way Booker, basically, he takes biblical wisdom and tries to apply it today. Mm -hmm. Who were your own kind of moral guides in life, uh, David? Um, Was it in your family that you developed such a strong sense of where to look for in terms of these spiritual evolutions. Yeah, well, I grew up in a Jewish immigrant family, and there was certainly there was a kind of Jewish goodness that you get in a home on a Friday night. I often say that every church service I've been to is more spiritual than every synagogue service. 
But every Friday night Shabbat meal, I've been to is more spiritual than every church service. There's some form of Jewish goodness. The word is chesed. It's, it's loving kindness. And it's baked into the culture that's, that's been going down thousands of years. But then I've seen other kinds of goodness. I describe in the book a, a man who I knew when I was young named Wes Wubenhorst, who became an Episcopal priest. Uh, and he was just a man. He was sort of a man-child. He spoke with enthusiasm and pops and clicks and laughter. And he worked in Honduras in deep poverty. He worked with women who suffered domestic violence. So he saw hard stuff, but he radiated incandescent joy. Uh, and he just did not think of himself. He was genuinely a man for others. And that is a kind of inspiring goodness that really reorients your life. And I, I've met so many people who are incandescent in that way, and they've all let the self die. Mm-hmm. Mor- you call it moral joy, don't you? Yeah, in I think book. that's what we shoot for. Yeah. Uh, if we shoot for happiness, we're going to screw up. Um, you know, you also write about mentors. What is a mentor? Um, your mentor really was William F. Buckley, right? I mean, you, you, after you left uh, the University of Chicago, you went to the National Review uh, as an intern. What did you learn from Buckley? Well, he was he, he, I was his surrogate son for a, about a year and a half. He took me boating and he took me to Bach concerts. He respected my opinion or seemed to. He seemed to ask my opinion. But I think what we learn from mentors, A, what is worth wanting, even if it's hard. What young people want, and I think what we all want, is not the easy, happy life. We want a hard life, but worthy of the hardness. So in the book, I talk about a great scientist, E.O. Wilson, and his... No, oh, me- I love the E.O. Wilson stuff. Talk yeah. about E.O. Wilson. I love that story. Yeah. Well, the first story is how he discovered his vocation. He was seven, and his family was splitting up. His folks were divorcing. They sent him away to a beach in Florida, and he saw stuff. He'd never seen jellyfish, stingrays. And he said at that moment, a, a naturalist was born. He saw this new world and was besotted by it. And so he says when you... I call it in the book an enunciation moment that moment early in life that prefigures a lot of what is going to happen. Einstein, when he was four, somebody gave him a compass, and he got a sense, oh, there's these invisible forces in the world. That prefigured everything else. For Wilson, it was seeing nature. But then uh, he had a mentor at Harvard named Philip Darlington, and at one point Darlington was trying to collect bugs in the Amazon in a pond, and a crocodile reached up and grabbed him and pulled him down, and his whole right side of his body was shredded. And he dragged himself back to camp. He survived. And as Wilson wrote in his book, Naturalist, surviving a crocodile is not a sign of great character. <laughs> but what happened next was, and he, he was still in a body cast. He stayed another six months in the Amazon, dragged himself out to collect samples, learned to collect them with one hand because the other hand was in a cast, and just doggedly did that. And I think that's what we want as young people to say, this is not going to be easy, but this is worthy of your effort. Yeah. And you worked also for Jim Lehrer, right, at PBS NewsHour. You used a phrase which I was loved that too. You said Lehrer enforced a moral ecology. How do you enforce a moral ecology? Yeah, subtly. And he was also a mentor of mine. So my first 10 years on the PBS NewsHour with Lehrer was the host, and Mark Shields and I would talk to him. And when he's on the air, Lehrer could be very stoical. But when the camera was not him, he was very reactive. And so when I said something that he thought was insightful or good, his eyes would crinkle in pleasure. When I said something he thought was crass or not good, his mouth would turn down (laughs) in displeasure. So for 10 years, I tried to chase the eye crinkles and avoid the mouth downturns. Mm -hmm. In that way, he instructed me subtly on how to be. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We seem to be living in a time when the uh, sort of scandals that hit are like a kind of living, vibrant David Brooks <laughs> moral horror lesson. I mean, this, the school cheating scandal. I, I was interested in your thoughts on that when you read of it. It's just the elephantiasis of status fighting. I found it among my students, and I've gotten radicalized about this, is that it's not even cheating to get in. It's what they do to the kids. That parents, all my students, their parents love them. And all my students, their parents are anxious about them. But for some of my students, the parents put the beam of love on the kid more strongly when they do something mom and dad approve of. And then if the kid does something mom and dad don't approve of and they don't think will lead to career success, the beam of love is withdrawn. Mm -hmm. So the most precious relationship of their young lives is conditional. And they feel it's always in danger of being pulled away if they don't do something that will get them into Goldman Sachs. And if you go to any campus, doesn't matter where you are, any campus right now, the mental health facilities are swamped. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what do you think that's about? Well, I think it's partly, um, partly cell phones, smartphones. I mean, the teenage suicide rate in the last 12 years or so has risen by 70%, 70%. Partly smartphones, partly conditional love, partly the moral vacuum in which they're raised. You're a strong believer in, in the need for passion at the outset of a marriage, and you, you write a wonderfully evocative section in the book about the steps by which a person falls in love with another. But I have to also say that it sounded a bit like the era of Jane Austen, because <laughs> today's kids just sort of swipe left and they're good to go, right? So nothing really like you describe now. Uh, again, you know, relationships now happen in a very, very different way. They're forged. I mean, the, the whole culture of, of Tinder and all this stuff, yeah. this is really where kids are finding their mates a lot of the time. Well, my students uh, find their mates. A lot of my female students especially regard Tinder as a form of video game. <laughs> They're just doing it swiping one way or the other for fun. It doesn't really lead to anything. I don't think the human heart has changed. Uh, I think intimacy is something happens very gradually. Uh, that it's a series of conversations, a series of revelations of vulnerabilities, and each side is slowly measuring, if I reveal, will you reveal? If I pause, will you respect my pause? There's a series of very subtle challenges we have to each other. And I, I don't think that has changed. And I, I think as people really think about who to marry and how to get close to someone, they want it to be a slow revelation of gates uh, that are opening. I'm always fascinated by a couple of stories in the book of love at first sight. It's, it's never happened to me, but I, I'm sort of fascinated by people who fall in love. And one of my stories in the book, which is a true story, uh, there's a hairdresser in Houston named David. And a woman came into his hair salon, took a look at him, and she was uh, already engaged. And she was moving to San Francisco to be married to her fiancé. And she decided to get her hair done before she left. And she took a look at this guy, went to the back room, called her mom and said, I've just seen a man I'm actually going to marry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she gets out in the chair. He's cutting her hair. And he asks her a story. And she says, well, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm about to go to San Francisco to be with a man I'm going to marry. But I won't do it if you'll marry me. And he looked at the scissors and said, I never felt more free than I did at that instant. And he said, it's a deal. <laughs> and so they got married. Uh, I'm sort of transfixed by those It is cases. completely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Some people no. just know. They and... know, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that has to be a kind of pre 
sort of meeting of the minds, yeah, that they, or, or maybe it's timing. Switch, I, yeah. I, I'm not sure. Just to go back to politics for one minute before we uh, wrap, I mean, you've seen the Republican Party become the party of Trump, right? Yeah. How do your old sort of Republican mates, I mean, how are they feeling about what you're saying? I mean, there are times... Uh, when you know you talk about the about inequity so passionately and about the lack of any moral compass in business, when you're almost sounding like, could David Brooks become a socialist? Yeah, um, the answer is no. I, I I hate the way the word socialism has been stolen yeah. by statism. But it's, yeah. I would be a socialist. It really meant social. Um, I think among my friends on the conservative side, there's a lot of rethinking going on. We're not going back to the the free marketism of Ronald Reagan or even of Paul Ryan. It's going to be a, a conservatism that is about reestablishing social bonds, social capital. And frankly, if, if you look at the big unmet need in our electorate, it's people who are economically left and socially right. We always think the future is going to be in people who are socially liberal and like balanced budgets. Almost nobody is there. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who are pro-life but also pro-Bernie on economic stuff just because they want cohesion, they want security, and they want some economic togetherness as well as social togetherness. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if a lot of people ended up there. And who are the people that you think can lead us there? I mean, you're looking at, you know, a lot of thinkers and, and political activists and so on. I mean, who's impressed you? Who has ideas on, on how to reinvent the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, the smartest young conservative writer um, is a guy named Yuval Levin, who's at National Affairs, and that's a journal that really does very good stuff on reinventing conservatism. A think tank that is one of the most dominant, vibrant think tanks in the world is called the Niskanen Center. And they're sort of fallen away libertarians. And they point out that a lot of the countries that have the most free markets also have the most generous welfare states. And so the idea that we're pro-market or pro-state doesn't make any sense because the, the Norway and Denmark have both. And so they're doing a lot of fr- fresh thinking. In the U.S. Senate, I find there's a complete generation gap. The senators over 50 are stuck in a certain way. But underneath, there's a guy named Mike Lee from Utah, Marco Rubio, uh, Tim Scott from South Carolina. Uh, they're thinking in fresh ways. Uh, ben Sass from Nebraska, Tom Cotton, not a, somebody I always agree with, but there's freshness there. And so if there's going to be political leadership, it'll probably be from the next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, to conclude, David, I mean, we, you've talked about getting to the second mountain. Where would you put yourself on this evolutionary chain right now, uh, one to ten? You know, where, yeah. where do you feel you are? I'm on the foothills of the second you're, mountain. You're on the foothills. I, I can tell people, some people have fallen into themselves. They, they were living with their ego and they were driven by their ego. And after when they've fallen into themselves and gone down to the substrate, they've just lost a little interest in that. And what you can tell because they're willing to be vulnerable. The being vulnerable in our culture is the hardest thing, the most courageous thing because there's so much snark and attack. But they're willing to be open because they think it's worth it and they're courageous enough to do that. We live in such a punishing time. I mean, I feel that America's obsessed with punishment. When you read a wonderful column, I thought, about the call-out culture, yeah. about blaming and naming and ruining careers that get yeah. shredded. At a, at a, is that going to change? I, I think it has to. We just long for intimacy. Uh, we long for trusting relationships. And our democracy and our market are built on this foundation of trust, which is being shredded. Uh, and I think the call-out culture comes from a mixture of desire for moral passion with real psychological wounds. And so the willingness to be able to talk about intimate life, about psychological life, about emotional life, to me that's the way forward and we're all fumbling our way. But you try to commit to things that you think will be selfless and be for the good. So um, I've got this project, the Aspen Institute, called Weave, the Social Fabric Project, which is designed to lift up people who are really creating communities and creating intimate social connections who live for relationship. 
economists tell us we're mobilized by the desire for money, status, and power. The people I'm celebrating are not motivated by any of those things. Mm -hmm. They want to live in right relationship with others and serve the good. Is there a realm beyond the second mountain? Uh, there must must be a third mountain. <laughs> I, that's my next book, maybe. I hadn't thought about that. Next yeah. time, the third mountain. <laughs> thank you, David. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Like what you heard today? There's more where that came from. Check out my interview with Media Prince, editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.